0: It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at wrtfm.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the Donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference.
1: Six foot six above sea level. I
0: grabbed my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low no power frequency radio modulation, the big sound. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday. So that means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to a public affair on W O R T 89.9 FM Madison. It is so great. We've made it. Hey everyone. Wait, take a deep. Ah, sigh. We, we made it. We made it to today. We have been talking about the uh, fall 2022 election for months now, interviewing candidates from both sides of the political aisle, from the Senate, from the governor, from the AG's office, uh, across uh, the state legislature. And now is sort of the, the show we, we've all been thinking about and excited about to really have a breakdown of what happened, what does this mean how does that predict the future? We have no balls. We can't predict any future, but let's let's see what we can do. Um, so I'm really excited to have our show today. We have two guests joining us. For the first half of the show, we're going to be talking with Professor Anthony Tchaegovsky. He is Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse. Hello, Anthony. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Carousel. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's wonderful to have you, and you teach American government and politics, um, about Congress, the American presidency, political parties, campaigns, and elections, political communication, mass media, social media, Wisconsin government, and that's really where we're gonna hone in with you so much. So it, it's so great to have you, and really your 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 big picture knowledge to to bring onto the show. Um,
2: well, it was a big day. I think a lot of in a lot of ways, the election turned out in surprising, in a surprising manner. I I think that a lot of the predictions that people made about the election turned out to be false. Yeah. And so it's a very interesting election to unpack analytically.
0: So I want to talk about Wisconsin with you, but let's just first set the scene a little bit, because I think Wisconsin is reflective of a little bit of what happened. Big picture, which is now let's take the year 2022 out of it in general when someone is elected president a democrat or a republican in the united states two years later the other party seems to have a wave of success that is the story of america of us maybe we're indecisive, we go back and forth, whatever it is, that is the tradition. So because President Biden is a Democrat who won two years ago, the prediction was this year there was going to be a Republican red wave following that trend, and that it was even going to be even bigger than usual because of the state of inflation and economics. And that is not what happened. Tell us about that, Anthony.
2: It's not, Carousel, but you're absolutely right in setting the stage. One of the the most bankable patterns in American politics is that midterm elections are horrible for the political party of the president. We've seen that in countless elections over the past century plus. And Carousel, in this particular election, I don't want to say it was a great election for the Democrats, but... The Democrats way overperformed expectations. They did far better than anyone had expected them to do. And that's true nationally. When you look at the balance of power in Congress, a lot of talk was going around about the majority control of the House of Representatives, majority control of the Senate. Republicans may get the majority control of the House of Representatives. In fact, it looks like they will, but they're not going to gain nearly the number of seats that we thought they would. And the Senate remains a toss up at this point. So the Democrats have a good chance of even maintaining their majority in the Senate. So those are the national stories. And then here in Wisconsin, we have the same thing, things going better than expected for Democrats. Again, not saying that the Democrats set records with how they did, not saying that the Democrats now have complete control of every level of government because they just wiped out the Republicans, not saying that at all. But the Democrats did much better than expected and the Democratic Party by and large is celebrating today because they avoided the worst case scenarios, in fact, they did quite a bit better than people had even thought was possible for them.
0: Well, and I think it's really interesting is that I was sort of watching the news and and reading things and preparing for our conversation today. And I got I I pulled sort of two quotes from conservative leaders. One is from uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who is a Republican in the U.S. Senate. And he said, quote, definitely not a Republican wave. That's for darn sure. And then um, Mark Thiessen, who is a columnist for The Washington Post and a commentator for Fox News. So uh, perhaps uh, maybe he wouldn't say he's politically aligned conservative, but, but he is as a regular commentator with Fox News. And his quote is, this wasn't a red wave. This is a searing indictment of the Republican Party. This is a searing indictment of the message that we have been sending to the voters. That, that's a little strong, but how do you feel about those quotes?
2: I think there's something to those quotes, Carousel. First of all, I would note that we have seen strong evidence and you know we're going to be collecting more evidence. It's what I do all day as a political scientist. I collect evidence and data and try to understand the world based on that. But the early evidence, the early data certainly indicates that the Supreme Court's ruling to overturn Roe versus Wade had a fundamental impact mm-hmm. on this election. Yeah. It completely reshaped what might have been a terrible election for Democrats, and it made it something else. So I think the first observation I would make is that the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade had an effect. There was a lot of talk. Maybe there wouldn't be such an effect because this decision came down several months ago. That decision still had a major impact on these elections. Secondly, Carousel, I would note Donald Trump's influence on the Republican Party. A lot of the candidates that underperformed on the Republican side were closely tied to Donald Trump, maybe had been supported by Donald Trump in the nomination process. So a lot of Republicans are frustrated with Donald Trump's influence in the party. Of course, that's nothing new. Republicans have been Many of them have been frustrated with Donald Trump's influence in the party for a while. But I think it might be coming to a bit of a head at this point because of the extent to which the party underperformed expectations. So you've got a lot of turmoil going on in the Republican party right now as they try to sort out what exactly they're going to be as a political party. What I can tell you though, Carousel, is that the abortion ruling by the Supreme Court had a key impact. At least that is what the early evidence indicates.
0: We're going to be talking about the election results from yesterday. If you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at area code 608. 256-2001 Two five six two zero zero one extension nine. Jade and Megan are in the studio. They're ready for your calls. They can uh, patch you in to join us, or you can share a message with them if you don't want to join us live on the air. Area code 608 six zero eight two five six two zero zero one extension nine. Okay, Anthony. So let's let's now bring us to Wisconsin because obviously we want to talk about that. So a split state. The sa- the state that reelected. Governor Evers, also reelected Senator Ron Johnson, and talk to us about how that happened. And is the word "reelected" key to that?
2: It it is because a lot of times those voters that do something that might be kind of odd to us, Carousel, and vote for both Tony Evers and Ron Johnson, a lot of the times they're taking that incumbent factor into mind. They're really focusing on just re-electing the person who's already there. A lot of people just don't like change. A lot of people like to keep the same folks there because they think, ah, things are kind of going okay. So they keep the same folks in office. Maybe they're averse to change for some reason. So while it might seem bizarre, given how different Tony Evers and Ron Johnson are, there were actually a decent number of voters, enough to make the difference, that did vote for both Evers and Johnson. For Governor Evers, he was really lifted to victory by two key factors. He got great numbers out of the key suburbs in Milwaukee. Okay, He has really shown the potential to improve the Democratic Party's vote totals in those crucial suburban areas around the Milwaukee region. And then carousel relevant to y'all there in Dane County, Governor Evers did an enormous vote total in Dane County. Dane County delivered big time for the Democratic ticket and the sheer number of votes that the Democrats got out of Dane County is a big reason why Governor Evers is gonna be serving a second term.
0: And it it seemed to, the, the numbers I, and the conversation I was seeing about Dane County said that our vote totals from yesterday mirrored presidential year vote totals. Is that accurate?
2: It is, Carousel. There's a few factors at play. First is the population growth of Dane County. Dane County is the fastest growing area in Wisconsin. The Madison area is red hot. We know that. And so the population is growing, unlike many areas in Wisconsin where the population is stagnant or maybe even shrinking. So Madison and Dane County stand out for that reason. Secondly, as you noted, Carousel, voter turnout. Dane County's voter turnout rates are sky high. They are consistently sky high. And 2022 was no exception. There was unbelievable voter turnout from Dane County. And finally, the percentage of the vote that goes to the Democrats has been increasing over the years out of Dane County. Mm. You put these three factors together, population growth, voter mobilization, voter turnout, and the margin of victory for Democrats that all adds up to Dane County just delivering big time for these Democratic candidates. Again, that vote out of Dane County is essential to explaining why Governor Evers was able to win re-election.
0: That's so interesting because the Dane County board, you know, 15, 20 years ago was a... Uh... Conservative-led, and then the progressives, when they took over the county board, because they're it's not Democrat and Republican on the county board, but sort of conservative and progressive, that they would have a one-vote lead and a two-vote lead uh, over the um, conservatives. And now the Dane County board is really... Progressive, extreme, regressive, moderate, progressive, you know, more like a conservative. It, it's sort of the different factions are the different levels of Democrats. So th- that's interesting that you see that. I hadn't really thought about that. But right, the county board really reflects the changes in Dane County um, electorate.
2: Absolutely. The politics of Dane County are really important to understanding the statewide politics Mm. of Wisconsin because Dane County plays such an important role in statewide elections. One thing that happens, Carousel, over the years, one thing that we've known, you noted some changes in Dane County over the years as the county has become more progressive. One thing that we've seen on the opposite end is more rural parts of Wisconsin becoming significantly more conservative. So we've seen this geographic polarization in this state. We have seen rural areas really go strong in the Republican camp, while Madison and Milwaukee go big time for the Democratic camp. It adds up to really close statewide elections. So it makes statewide elections really interesting and really dramatic. But we're seeing just such an intense geographic divide between urban and rural in this state. I think moving forward, the Democrats have a couple key questions ahead of them. Can they maintain the voter turnout? the margins that they're getting in urban areas like Madison? Second, can they continue making inroads into these key suburbs? Can Democrats continue gaining voters from these key suburban areas, most notably the suburbs surrounding Milwaukee? And third, can Democrats rebuild in rural Wisconsin? Because right now, the Democratic Party is in deep, deep trouble in rural Wisconsin. They're still able to win statewide elections because they do so well in urban areas and because they're doing well in, in, suburb, in the suburbs. But the Democratic Party does have some work ahead of it as it tries to rebuild in rural areas. So the geography of Wisconsin is really, really interesting. It all adds up to really close elections. And Carousel, these were close elections.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Evers did win, but he won by a very small margin. Ron Johnson won re-election, but it was the closest election of his career. So we have these very tight statewide elections. And I think that's just going to be the norm going forward, unless something really shifts in the geography of the state.
0: So, Anthony, here's the million-dollar question. And Dennis called in, and he has the million-dollar question we, we all are asking. Um, how did um, Evers win, but Barnes lose? Or the other way, how did Ron Johnson win, but Tim Michaels lose. How, how did that happen then?
2: I could offer my best guesses at this point. Uh, these are just hypotheses, but I can offer some hunches. My first hunch is that the politics of abortion played a major role in the race for governor, and it did not play such a central role in the race for Senate. That really? is one possibility because okay. Wisconsin- went to the, after Roe versus Wade was overturned, we know that Wisconsin went to a basically total ban on abortion, according yes. to its 1849 law. And one thing that might've entered voters' minds is just a theory I've been kicking around and I don't know if it's true or not. One theory that I've been kicking around is that people understand that state officials have responsibility for state abortion law. When it comes to Ron Johnson, we're talking about national law. When it comes to the race for Senate, we're talking about national policy. We're not really talking about state policy. So people might view politics Hmm. a little bit differently depending on if it's a state election or a national election. That's one possibility.
0: That's so interesting because I will say, as someone with two teenage daughters— What I really wanted, and and someone that cares about reproductive rights, I was really watching to see what would happen in the U.S. Senate if we could pick up, if the Democrats could pick up two seats to override the, um, or change the filibuster. And I know that a lot of things have to happen to, to get there, but I actually saw the road to protecting reproductive rights in Wisconsin through the U.S. Senate.
2: Carousel, I want to pick up on that because it's a really important point. When it comes to the race for Senate, we saw that Ron Johnson and the Republican Party focused relentlessly on the issues of crime, policing and public safety. Yes. The issue of abortion was front and center in the campaigning, the advertisements, the messaging for Governor Evers. I think Governor Evers was extremely effective at highlighting Tim Michael's stances on abortion and really making that a key consideration for voters. Mandela Barnes really struggled to elevate the issue of abortion in the campaign because he was so in the mode of responding to the relentless and and millions of dollars worth of negative ads that were coming his way that were going after his record on crime and police. I think Governor Evers was able to dictate the terms dictate the agenda, dictate the message of the campaign in a way that maybe Mandela Barnes wasn't. Because Mandela Barnes did seem to be on the defensive quite a bit. He wasn't quite able to pivot and go on the offense. I know that Mandela Barnes's team would have loved to be consistently on the offense on the issue of abortion. However, When it comes to this campaign, they were just really in a defensive posture because Hmm. they were just getting bombarded with negative ads on Mandela Barnes's record regarding crime, police and public safety.
0: And Anthony, what role do you think race played in in this Mandela Barnes, African-American leader, our current lieutenant governor? Uh, But conversations about race and crime, it just feels so particularly targeted against an African American running for office that there's levels of racism that 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 are the sort of the history of America. What how did that play into this?
2: It's hard to know right now, Carousel. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're going to have pretty good data in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead to try to unpack this. But I will say that there was quite a difference between how the issue of crime and police played out in the race for Senate compared to how it played out in the race for governor. When we talk about the race for governor, it was mainly about the Kenosha, the, the situation in in Kenosha. It was mainly about some of the 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 Black Lives Matter movement, the protests. It was really about the crime rate when it came to the race for Senate. It was about violent crime. And and so I I you know when you look at how much an issue was emphasized in one race versus the other, crime was just such a more Center it was just so much more at the center of the action in the Senate campaign than in the race for governor. So you know, I don't, that plays out in voters' psychology in sometimes complicated ways. But when we talk about the issue of race, it is absolutely worth mentioning that the issue of crime was far more. On the agenda in the race for Senate as compared mm. to the race for governor, where there were other issues discussed. And frankly, Governor Evers was fairly effective at defining what issues were most important in the race for governor.
0: And sometimes maybe that that's the uh, benefit that the incumbent has they are the first voice out there it's not i'm running for this office it's i'm running for the incumbent and you're already having to respond to an incumbent's lead is, is that sort of indicative of what we see when people take on incumbents
2: i i think so It's really difficult to defeat an incumbent governor. Incumbent governors have a huge success rate when they try to get reelected. So if we just look statistically, it's actually no surprise that Governor Evers got reelected. But again, if we look at the politics of this particular year, if we look at how tightly competitive Wisconsin is, then it is notable that Governor Evers was able to pull out a victory. One thing that I would note, Carousel, is that the... That is, that is the Trump factor in the race for governor okay. that I don't think was quite there in the race for Senate. And I also think that this played a key role. Tim Michaels had to get through a competitive primary on the Republican side for him to be the nominee of his party for governor. A big part of his victory in the Republican nomination process was getting Trump's endorsement. Frankly, I don't think Tim Michaels would have become the Republican nominee Had he not received Trump's endorsement. Yes. But what sells in the primary election is often different than what sells in the general election. Governor Evers gave a rather entertaining victory speech last night where he derided himself as boring and he even called himself Mr. Rogers at one point. So he said he kind of made these self-deprecating comments about how he's not a very flashy guy. He's not the most inspiring speaker. He's not someone who is going to get a crowd into a frenzy over how inspiring he is. But he did seem like the safe option, I think, to many voters who maybe had concerns about Tim Michaels. So I think Governor Evers has, you know, he, he's politically a shrewd actor. He believes that the best way for him to broaden his appeal is to focus on how he is kind of a boring guy right. and how he isn't that exciting. And that actually may have the effect of reaching out to those key swing voters who decide close elections in Wisconsin. So Governor Evers is often underestimated politically because he's so low key and because he's not sort of the made for TV style politician that we do sometimes see around the country. That being said, though, I think Governor Evers can use his low key nature to his advantage. I think he did that in this election.
0: We're talking right now with uh, professor, professor Anthony Tregoski, um Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse. Um, Anthony, when we're talking about Wisconsin elections, let's talk about the Wisconsin State Assembly. In our final moments with you, I'm sorry, not just the State Assembly, but the, the entire state legislature. wanted to ask you about... What happened there? There was a thought that the Republicans were going to get a super majority in the Wisconsin state legislature and the Senate and in the assembly. And that didn't happen.
2: It didn't. This was something that was very much talked about leading up to the election. Would Republicans get that two-thirds majority in both chambers of the state legislature? If they were to achieve the two-thirds majority, then that lets them override vetoes. And that was something that they really wanted to obtain in case Governor Evers did get reelected because... If Governor Evers were to veto something, then with a two-thirds majority, you can just override his veto, and the thing becomes a law anyway, in spite of the veto. But Republicans fell short of that. And carousel, that means that there's going to be a lot of vetoes coming up. Of Republican legislation, the Republicans still have a a rock solid hold on the majorities in both chambers of the state legislature, largely because of the geographic concentration of Democratic voters in urban areas, but of course, also because Wisconsin is one of the most gerrymandered states in the entire nation. So for those reasons, Republicans have a solid hold on the majority. They did not get that two thirds majority. And that means that these next two years in Wisconsin state government could be a continuation of the last four. In the last four years, we've had Governor Evers with a large Republican majority in the state legislature, but not that two-thirds veto-proof majority. So we're kind of left with exactly what we started, exactly where we started. Um, I think that's our t- uh, that's our point that we that we go into the next two years of Wisconsin state government with using the last four years as our guide.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's good to know that, right, the the worst case scenario didn't happen and the, that there's still this sense of balance only because in general, Wisconsin is a purple state that, that goes both ways as we saw as the election outcome. We have a question, a call coming in. Um, let's see, who do we have? We have Tracy on the line. Tracy had a comment about um, the racial aspect of the campaign ads. Go ahead, Tracy. Yes, thank
1: you. Um, I am enjoying the program. However, I, I'm going to disagree with the um, presenter that I totally believe that the attack ads on Mandela Barnes that dealt with crime and um, and police had racial overtones mm-hmm. and the, the wasn't the Johnson campaign necessarily but it was these other campaigns of um, hidden money, dark money that um, flooded all of the um, athletic, all of the NBA games, the NFL games the Packers if you watched the backer game, which unfortunately I do. Um, it just flooded the mm-hmm. market yeah. at um, every possible um, timeout that they had with all of these negative ads against Mandela Barnes.
0: Anthony, what are your thoughts on that? Um, thanks so much for that comment, and I I do think it's an interesting conversation of. The power of contrasting sort of the the Mr. Rogers friendliness um, of uh, Governor Evers and the nastiness and the attack that was part of the um, Senate race. Anthony, yes.
2: And and I don't disagree with anything the caller said at all. But Carousel. Drawing that distinction between the race for governor and the race for Senate is so important in understanding why these races turned out the way they did. Like you said, Carousel, the Mr. Rogers persona of Governor Evers, he's kind of an older guy and is an unassuming person, isn't the most polished, is low key, and sometimes tries to use that as a political asset. Mandela Barnes is a very different type of of politician in the sense that he's much younger. He's black. He has less political experience than um, Tony Evers did prior to becoming governor. So I, I do think it is important to think about the differences between these campaigns and how one might have gone after Tony Evers in a negative way versus how one might have gone after Mandela Barnes in a negative mm-hmm. way. And the caller is absolutely correct. The negative attacks on Mandela Barnes were rel- were simply relentless. Yeah. They came from the Johnson campaign. They came from the Republican Party. They came from super PACs and dark money groups. So everything the caller is saying about just the enormous amount of negative negativity in the race is spot on.
0: Well, and they play they played on uh, racism of uh, if if a voter or uh, a person in Wisconsin had racism tendencies. They certainly would have been fueled by the racist way that Mandela Barnes was portrayed. Do you think I, that's you know it?
2: Carousel? I, I think that's fair. You know, I mean, when we when we think about this again, it's important to think about kind of like the way that the negative campaigning played out differently in these races in these different campaigns and and i think that that is a pretty important analytical lens to look at this race through to look at these campaigns through what were the key themes and the key attacks and the key narratives in the race for governor what were the key themes the key attacks and the key narratives in the race for senate there were some really important distinctions there between those two races, and I'm not surprised that they turned out differently. I mean, in retrospect, um, this was pretty foreseeable that they may have turned out differently. That there may have been, you know, just a few people splitting their tickets, voting cross-party, and leading to a split outcome with Ron Johnson winning re-election and Governor Evers winning re-election. The campaigns were just quite different, and um, that's going to lead voters to think about the campaigns differently.
0: Well, it's been fabulous talking with you and really sort of breaking down where everyone's waking up. I guess every, everyone on the political, political aisle has something to be happy about this morning and frustrated about this morning here in Wisconsin. But it's interesting to see how this mirrored what was happening on the national level. So thank you for breaking it all down with us, Anthony. Really appreciate yeah. it.
2: Thank you so much, Carousel. It's been a pleasure.
0: It's been wonderful talking with you, Professor Anthony Tchaegovsky, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse. I hope this is the first of many times we get to talk on the show. Thanks, Anthony. I hope
2: so, too. Thank you.
0: Yep. And we will continue the conversation. I want to remind everyone, you are listening to A Public Affair on WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. I am your host today, Carousel Baird, and we are talking about what happened, a recap <laughs> Uh, although it's not done, but a recap of what we saw in politics yesterday uh, in the U.S. elections across Wisconsin and across the entire country. For the second half of the show, we are now joined by Professor Julia Azari. She is um, a professor of political science at Marquette University. Hello, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you, and I just want to say a little bit about the work that you've done. Your research and teaching interests include American presidents, American political parties, the politics of America, the state, the qualitative uh, research methods, and um, all the work that you've done at uh, Marquette University. And you also are a regular contributor to the political science blog, The Mischiefs of Faction?, and you've uh, had writings in the Washington Post and in Politico. So it's fabulous, fabulous to have you. So, Julia, can you start? We talked big picture, but help us lay the lawn. I want to uh, lay the landscape. I want to hear your take on big picture. It wasn't the Republican national landslide that was predicted. What's your take on what happened yesterday?
3: All right, so I have a couple of things that I want to uh, point out <laughs> from yesterday. Yesterday morning, uh, the big kind of thing that, that all the pundits were saying, uh, I think there was a little bit of a little bit of groupthink on the podcast, because I listened to podcast ever, after podcast, where they all said the same thing, which was to look at um, these three districts in Virginia to kind of see what kind of night we were going to have. And so there's one district that where the, all three held by Democratic women um, and one of those districts, the one held by Elaine Loria, who's been serving on the January 6th committee, she did lose her seat. But the other two. So there was one that was kind of middle of the road, Virginia's seventh, um, held by Abigail Spanberger, so a moderate Democrat who's now held on for three election cycles in this kind of competitive district. And then Jennifer Wexton in a, a more trending blue district. And so everybody yesterday morning was kind of saying if Virginia's 10th district goes Republican, then you know that this is your sign for the red wave. So fairly early in the night, we started to get returns to see that that didn't happen, that the the 7th and the 10th were still Democratic. Um, So that's, I think, kind of the early early takeaway. So that immediately brought out this kind of skepticism of the red wave. The second thing I want to point out is, as you said, we still don't actually know what's going on. Um, The House... Republicans are two seats or excuse me, 20 seats away from uh, winning a majority. There's a bunch of seats that are not called. Democrats have um, about 20 more beyond that, that they would have to win to control the majority. Um, So we really don't know what's going to happen there. We can probably guess it'll be close. In the Senate, it's now we've we've um, our race here in Wisconsin has been called as of this morning so it's now down to arizona and georgia which you're kind of like is this familiar
0: does this remind you of <laughs> haven't we had this conversation <laughs> before right
3: right we've we've been here before um and you know kind of similarly thinking about last night's map the attention some of this is just the quirks of this how the senate works and what ha- seats happen to be up we're also you know all eyes on pennsylvania and when fetterman won pennsylvania When that race was called, that was kind of like a a key indicator of the kind of night that the Democrats were having much not amazing, but much better than expected. Similarly, Pennsylvania was the key state in 2020.
0: And that was a flip seat. That was in particular, not Mm -hmm. especially that for the first half of the show, when we talked about Wisconsin, we Mm -hmm. were talking about Mm -hmm. the power of incumbency for Ron Johnson and for Governor Evers. And Pennsylvania, although it wasn't the incumbent, it it was held by a Republican. And it's a seat that has now been flipped when yep. in a 50-50 Senate makes a big difference.
3: It does make exactly it does make a big difference. And so far among the Senate races, if I'm recalling correctly, as we wait on those Georgia and uh, Arizona um those races so far the republicans actually have not flipped a senate seat um the they've won some competitive races but they haven't flipped one so the reason i bring up 2020 though is because this kind of looks like a replay of 2020 and that's unusual usually a midterm election we look to the midterm to be kind of like a rejection Mm -hmm. of the past election and instead it looks like many of the same dynamics are at play and the last thing i want to say just briefly is thus far again many seats not called in the house republicans have lost uh, excuse me. Have gained two seats in the House. Um, the the no- average number of seats that that um, parties lose in in midterm elections is much closer to you know twenty or thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, Obama's first midterm election, they lost sixty over sixty seats. So so far, very modest gains for this sort of out party situation, unpopular president, a lot of concerns about the economy, and yet. The, the out party in Congress has not translated this into a big a big victory. That's really remarkable.
0: Well, and I appreciate, Julie, you're really tying our show together. You didn't hear the first half, but we sort of started with mm-hmm. the history of traditionally the party yep. that is not the president. The party not held by the president is the party that has tremendous gains two years later. That, that, that's just been the history of the mm-hmm. U.S. consistently. You know, with some <laughs> variations, but consistently, and the fact that the Republicans may gain a little, or they mm-hmm. actually may gain nothing, is, mm-hmm. is quite a testament, actually, to to what then. So, before we get into some of the gritty, <laughs> what is it telling us? Is it telling us the power of the abortion conversation that mm-hmm. that really, um, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, mm-hmm. that that had a bigger impact than people were realizing was it sort of a sleeper in there or where is there more going Mm on yeah it's a really
3: great question and i don't i don't really know you know what um you know we aren't going to know what the explanation is i think we'll probably debate about this explanation for a long time the last two times this has happened where the president's party has actually gained seats 2002 and nineteen ninety eight. 2002 is kind of like pretty clear because the post 9-11 context, but 98 people are still arguing about <laughs> um, you know, that's like this before my students were born um, so i'm okay but I let me address this I think there actually one way to think about this and self-promotion i just uh wrote a piece about this for a website called grid news um where i kind of try to think about how the abortion issue fits in with this broader issue of democracy that people are concerned about and polls show people are concerned about the health of american democracy and i think that we have some evidence that those two things might work in tandem because one thing that we found was some of the most sort of like really out there election deniers like uh, Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. were defeated, Don Baldock and in New Hampshire. Um, even some of the more extreme things that, that Tim Michaels had said pretty recently here in Wisconsin. So some of these um, election denial figures really, you know, <laughs> did go down. And also we saw, you know, the abortion, you um, initiatives and referenda when i believe the last thing i saw was five for five
0: i mean i want to talk about that how about so we'll start with the easy ones vermont and california uh passed state uh referendums of state constitutional Mm -hmm. right to reproductive freedom great Mm -hmm. michigan which also was had some levels of battleground um, it's it's been a state that could go both ways. They passed a state constitutional right to reproductive health. What I love is what happened in Kentucky and even Montana. In Kentucky, mm-hmm. they voted down a, mm-hmm. a statement that their constitution would not protect abortion. They wanted to sort of do the the double negative. Our Constitution will not protect abortion. And they said, no, we're not going to say that. And in Montana, they had a born alive gestational uh, age is a legal person kind of referendum. And Montana voted that down. Mm -hmm. What are your takes on that?
3: Yeah, too. it's really interesting. I mean, it's not as surprising given that that happened in Kansas over the uh, summer. Kans- Kansas Very was
0: surprising. Maybe we're not surprised anymore. Kansas was yeah. like, what? who saw that coming? Yeah,
3: absolutely. So here's, I mean, I think just to bracket Montana, Montana's an interesting place. I think it increasingly um, is has some kind of California out migration um, is sort of picking up on, you know, some of the smaller towns there and college towns are, are growing. It's always had kind of like a, libertarian independent streak to its politics um but just speaking really kind of more broadly about seeing this happen in different states that where we may not expect it michigan also um very divided state but also passed um a, a abortion rights um ballot measure. so i think what you're seeing here though if you actually look at some some A polling data. I've been looking at this one statistic from Pew Research Center, a really big, reputable polling firm, from um, early 2022 that shows almost 40 percent of Republicans supporting um, abortion being legal in some or all circumstances. And we don't really know what the breakdown is or like what people are thinking when they say that. But that's a huge, and then nearly all Democrats. That is a humongous chunk of a party that at the top is very anti-abortion I don't totally know what to make of that but we have seen we've seen it here in Wisconsin in the Marquette poll just majorities in very purple states where people are very divided on a lot of issues but mostly support um they mostly support some level of abortion rights even if they're personally opposed or have some reservations that they they don't really see this as an area where they want the law and the government to be involved in their or anyone else's life.
0: Very interesting to and, and affirming to, to see that the actually play out that way. We're talking right now with uh marquette professor julia azari if you want to join the conversation we'd love to hear from you area code 608-256-2001 extension 9 megan and jade are in the studio they're ready for their uh your calls they can have you join us on the air or they can take a message and pass it on to us whatever works for you area code 608-256-2001 extension 9 all right, Julia, I want to talk uh, a little bit about some of the Senate races. What is your take on the victory in uh, Pennsylvania of John mm-hmm. Fetterman? And what is your take also on, you know, Georgia being neck and neck? Mm-hmm. Uh, how? What do those outcomes mean? Yeah, so I think, you know,
3: this is like I said, very similar to what we saw in 2020. I think mostly it means that these states are really competitive. Mm. Um, One thing that we did see in Pennsylvania is that the Democrat John Fetterman ran ahead of um, how Trump had run in that state in 2020 in a number of rural areas. So it's not super surprising that Mehmet Oz wasn't able to replicate Trump's success, even though in some ways he's a Trump-like candidate, a kind of celebrity figure with no um, political experience. But then, you know, he doesn't convey some of the kind of populist themes that Trump was able to, to convey in 2016 or even 2020. He's just not like that. I think the Fetterman campaign did a fairly effective job of using the material that Oz provided to uh, paint him as a rich, out-of-touch elite who doesn't live in Pennsylvania and really lives in New Jersey. I have never spent so much time thinking about New Jersey and Pennsylvania. (laughs) uh, They're closer
0: than we think. Right, right. Right,
3: right. People take that divide very seriously. Um, So, you know, I think that was part of it. I don't know how much we can attribute to some of these campaign factors. It does seem like, you know, Fetterman... um, people were really concerned after that debate. He's had some speech issues because he's had a stroke. Yes. But it does seem like that made people see him as strong and authentic and they related to some of those struggles.
0: Humanizing. Yes. Yes. Well, you talk a little bit, Julia, about Trump. You mentioned that a little. Can we Mm. talk about what does this mean? What night did Trump have last night? It it seemed like in swing states Mm -hmm. he wasn't. Mm -hmm as successful as he wanted to be
3: yeah I mean we haven't talked about Florida um
0: may be <laughs> and DeSantis, right what does it mean the power of Ron DeSantis and um right is he going to be the next uh right. battle between Ron DeSantis and and uh pre- former president Trump as the next nominee for the Republican party yeah so I think this
3: is really you know it's kind of an interest DeSantis is like a kind of a double-edged sword for Trump's legacy, right? He, if you remember back four years ago, DeSantis was the Trump-backed candidate in the primary. um, And then he was kind of a surprise win um, over Andrew Gillum in 2018. And now here he is, um, clearly the strongest competitor to be the next Trump. And so he is, in some ways, he's like the personification of the Trump legacy. And in other ways, because Trump is so kind of focused on himself, and focus on running again. DeSantis is major competition for that. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, you know, really complicated legacy. And the other way, a lot of these Trump style and Trump back candidates, Michaels, Baldick, um, Oz, you know, um, Oz uh, uh, right? Georgia, the Georgia race, right, mm-hmm. have gone down. Um, you know, J.D. Vance in Ohio is more of a Trump style success story. Yes. It's not super surprising. One takeaway from this election is Ohio and Florida don't seem to be nearly as competitive anymore as mm. they once were.
0: That's but, sort of interesting. Right. Florida. What, used...
3: But can I say one more thing about Trump? Yes, What's please. What's fascinating to me is <laughs> we're talking about Trump. Like, have we even talked about President Biden no. and the current president? Right. <laughs> um, right. Trump? I said this in like July. That, you know, if Trump made himself front and center in the election, then it would be a referendum on him and it would be 2018 again. And it's not 2018 again, obviously. But that kind of seems. yesterday I told my students, no, nah, that's not going to happen. Trump's, you know, he's sort of faded
0: out. But that that's not what it looks like, actually. Do I mean, so what does this bode for? What does the Republican Party do now? They... I mean, the quotes and I, I said some quotes at the the top of the show, quotes from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, commentators from Fox mm-hmm. News, Senator Lindsey Graham, sort of s- acknowledging that this wasn't the mm-hmm. success that the Republican Party had wanted to see. Do, will there be an internal reckoning or I mean, how how much mm-hmm. do you reckon with President Trump? It's not such an easy thing to do.
3: No. And I think, you know, there was um, credit where credit is due. Um Matt Iglesias from Bloomberg made a comment on Twitter earlier that I hadn't really thought about in these terms. He said, if you're a, a Trump supporter, you might look at these results and say, look, Trump really does. The Republicans really do best when Trump is actually on the ballot. And it's the absence of Trump that was the problem here. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I thought that that was that was worth thinking about. Um, This is such an unsatisfying answer, but I honestly am hoping to do some research with a collaborator to really try to get at what. Regular people in the Republican and Democratic parties, kind of what they think happened in this election and how they think it translates to what they want to see their parties do. So far, I mean, from 2020, we did not see a lot of reflection among Republicans. No. One thing that is very notable, though, from last night is that among Republicans who have lost, most of them have conceded, even ones who had made election denying noises. They've conceded.
0: That's good to know. Well, but that, and so that brings me to. Um, maybe the last thing we'll have time to talk about, which is, okay, back to the U.S. Senate. We've got Georgia, we've got Arizona, um, a little deja vu. These are not states that I, well, you tell me. I I get the feeling we're not going to know the winner in those states by the end of the day, right? This Arizona's going to take time, and Georgia, are we headed to a runoff now? What the heck happened in Georgia? Julia, you look frozen to me. Do we still have you on the line? All right, we're going to wait a second and hopefully Julia will connect back up with us. want to remind everyone, we are talking with Professor Julia Azari. She is a professor um, of political science at Marquette University. Looks like we just lost Julia. So I don't know what's going to happen. We need, let's see if we can connect connect with her on the phone. Oh, here she is again. Hey, Julia. We missed you. Sorry about that. Oh, that happens. Yeah.
3: My computer doesn't like Google Meet. Sorry. (laughs) Say your question again about Georgia.
0: Oh, yes. So it was just in our final moments here, the question about what happens now? Uh, So we're looking Mm -hmm. at for for the U.S. Senate, we're looking at Arizona, which that seems to be something that it takes time for Arizona Mm -hmm. to count ballots much longer than everybody else. What's going on there? And then... Mm -hmm. Georgia they have this fun runoff game talk to us about what does the next month look like as we figure Mm -hmm. out Arizona and Georgia Mm -hmm.
3: yeah so they're right so we're we're gonna watch Arizona go through their their counting process um follow their their rules um I do remember that taking a long time last year I don't remember if it's a quirk in their rules um and then um, Nevada also appears to still be counting. At last I looked, they hadn't called that race, and they also take a long time to count. I'm not totally sure what's up with that either, but they have some quirks in, in their counting process. And then, yeah, in Georgia, we go to a runoff election in December, and the conventional wisdom there is that this is probably good for Herschel Walker um, because... Or, excuse me, this is probably good for Raphael Warnock and okay. bad for Herschel Walker. That's Because what I heard. there's not... Okay without uh, Brian Kemp, the governor candidate on the, on the ticket, that this is a, this is going to potentially depress Republican turnout. And I'm sure you can imagine all the energy, all the emails that people have been getting from the Democratic Party. Now, um, all of that goes to to Warnock. And that ended up working out pretty well for him and Jonathan Ossoff in uh, 2021. Time. Yeah. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, you know, that's sort of what we're looking at here is, will those races get called, um, Arizona and, and Nevada? I think Georgia has officially been, um, the runoff has been announced. And as I had sort of uh, predicted, um, as I sort of predicted this, you know, this, the the balance of the Senate may come down to this Georgia runoff.
0: Well, and will that make a difference? I mean, right, we're just... I, hypothesizing here but i wonder mm-hmm. if the democrats win arizona mm-hmm. and nevada mm-hmm. and they're at 50 then mm-hmm. the outcome of the um georgia race maybe doesn't matter as much to the balance and i wonder to whose yeah. benefit that is maybe it mm-hmm. yeah i would think on some level it, it uh unmotivates people on both sides of the political aisle mm-hmm. to vote yeah
3: that's probably right, and if that's the case, I think at that point that becomes um, a, a slight benefit maybe to Warnock because I think that the Democratic Party likes Warnock. I think you know he maybe is seen as someone who has potential to be in the Senate for a long time to to rise to higher office. Hmm. Whereas Walker, I think you know a lot of Republicans maybe are not as as hot on him. He's not a member of the party. Um, in any kind of long-standing way right he's coming as an outsider and he's been kind of a challenging candidate so he's made them have to to jump to his defense so i think that might if it's not if it doesn't come down to georgia if if both if nevada and arizona go the same way um then georgia won't be the deciding state then that could be you're right i think it'd be a little bit less emphasized but that's how i think that would shake out
0: and and Our final minute here, Georgia, when do they do their runoff? Was it like the first week of December, something right after Thanksgiving? Well, that's going to make Thanksgiving dinner super fun in Georgia. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, this has been fabulous. Just to recap everything that's going on to really understand the... the, the initial thoughts coming out of the election, and I know more thoughts will continue as we have time to think, but it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us, Julia, and giving us your insights into the election.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, it's been great talking with you. That was Julia Azaria, professor of political science at Marquette University. And for the first half of the show, we talked with Anthony Tra- Tragosky, um, uh professor of political science at UW-La Crosse. It's been great talking with everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to Jade for producing, Megan for engineering, Ma- Mary Jo for staffing the phones. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you again next week.